Hello, and welcome to Dirt NC. I'm Jed Byrne. Dirt NC is all about the places and spaces of North Carolina and the people who make them awesome. Today, I am joined by Topher Thomas, who is the founder at Quorum Houses. Hey, Topher. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jed. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Happy to be here with you. Perfect. Perfect. Well, glad to have you here. Uh, If we could, for those who don't know you, could you start with kind of your 30-second elevator pitch on, on who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name is Topher Thomas, and I've spent the majority of my adult life in education. I taught everything from history of the 1960s to theology to marine biology to chemistry, and kind of just been all over the map over 13 years from grades 6 to 12. And then three years ago, pivoted due to just my own family's economic state, as well as recognition of some different forces that were happening in my neighborhood causing some displacement and just kind of watching these processes happen started quorum to try to push back against some of these forces that displace people who um who don't have a a chance to stay where they are in their communities so that's that's the 32nd and and what does what does quorum mean quorum houses Quorum, yeah, it's Latin for in the presence of or to behold. And it um, it comes from my theological training. So I have graduate degrees in, um, in theology and, and counseling. And this, this word goes back centuries, but it has this idea theologically of, you know, being aware of and present to uh, the work that God is doing in, in, in a moment and in, in, in a place. And so I kind of removed it from its theological context and took from it this idea of simply being present, right? Of being aware and being willing to face the realities of the things happening around you. You know, like for me in about 2016, 2017, post-Trump election and, and that whole time of life, I was, you know, mid-20s and kind of growing in awareness of systems um, that particularly harm specific groups of people. And and I was learning that history, learning my place within that history and processing all of it and wanting to be present to it. And, and so, yeah, so that word meant a lot to me and like learning and it's something I'm not good at doing. And so I think another thing it does for me being the company name is it's a forever reminder to me to slow down, to be present, to be watchful of what's happening within my own self and then what's happening within my community and what's happening, you know, broader than that. And then asking the question beyond that, like, what is mine to do while all these forces and these different things are happening? You know, how do we hold the past and the present and the potential future intention and do that well, right? When it's so easy to just be distracted and not be present, right? Um, and so it's a reminder to do that. And it's it's work. So and that's it, that's what it means. And And when you said you don't, you mentioned in there that you you don't do that well. I wasn't sure. Is that that the, the paying attention being present, or is it something else? Yeah, like I am not a naturally present person. Yeah. I am. I can be pretty high energy, and I can like you know kind of go from thing to thing, right? It's it's hard for me to have sustained focus on a thing, um, and yeah, and I can just be easily distracted. I can like want to take the path of ease and avoid harder things, right? And so this call to be present is a call to kind of subvert that and to push back against that desire to not face things, right? 
So that's what I was referring to. I don't think it comes naturally to me. I think it's something that is practiced yeah. and something that I want to practice. And then for, you know, naming it the company, I, I want the company to practice that. No, well. I, I appreciate your clarification, both on the, on the name and the, the idea of, of being present and paying attention. And, and this is, as we, we discussed before I, I hit record, I have, um, pretty severe extreme i don't know i've got adhd out the wazoo as i like to put it and mm-hmm. and i learned a few years ago somebody else who had adhd described it i always thought of it as as i have trouble paying attention but then i heard somebody describe it as in they actually it, it's hyper attention so you're very much focused but it's just not always on the things that you want to be focused right. on or that others think you should focus on and that's always resonated with me because i can absolutely think of times across my life where i have had what I would consider very good attention span. And, and it's, again, it's not mm-hmm. always on things I should focus on, but I can, I can mm-hmm. very much focus. And, and so I, I think of it that way too. Like sometimes it's not just that you're, you're not paying attention. It's that, that your mind is, is paying attention to something else. And, and my sense in hearing you tell your story, um, this is something, I mean, in, in order to, to really change the trajectory of your life, right. From, from a career and a personal perspective into this mm-hmm. work, my sense is uh, this this is something you're very much paying attention to. So I'm I'm glad to hear it and glad to learn more about it. No, that's so great. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I think you just, you made a great point. It just makes you think of like cultivation, like what we cultivate our attention towards, right? And so I think you're right. You know, it's yeah. So we can you know very much like sustain attention. I think about I used to like love video games when I was a teenager, and I could play a video game for like twelve hours straight. Uh-huh. You know, and um, exactly. And yeah. man, amazing attention to like focus on that thing for such a long period of time. Right. And so you're right. It's about like what is it that we're cultivating our attention towards? Right. Um, and I think for me, there was this growing desire and need to yeah cultivate my attention towards how do we belong? How do we as humans like yeah connect and stay together and stay connected when there are so many forces pulling us apart so yeah appreciate you yeah bringing that out well it's it's i I, it again it may may hold truth for you it may not but i i would um like to think when when you said you know three years ago this kind of this change you you noticed these forces or you took more notice of these forces and and where you are participating and interacting with those forces i would like to, to take a bit of a step back though do you remember or was there a time or, or like, a, I don't know if it's a fundamental memory or a fundamental um, interaction with the built environment and the idea of home. But like, where, where do you think that seed or where, where do you think that cultivation started? Was it, was it three years ago? Was there, was there a fundamental um, issue or spark or moment for you? Or, or was it further back from that? And, and whichever way it went, what, what was that for you? No, that's a, it's a great question. And I think it starts way, way before three years ago. Um, it brings me back to kind of my earliest memories with my dad, who was also an educator. Um, so, you know, growing up, he was a teacher at first, and then he kind of worked his way up the education ladder to assistant principal and then principal. And my mom was a uh, early elementary school teacher as well. And so, you know, we were in that kind of lower middle class, like what educators make type bracket. And so my dad did a lot of the repairs in our home. And so whenever things were broken, there was not like a, we're calling the handyman or whatever. It was, you know, my dad pulling out the tools and fixing things. And I remember him, you know, bringing me along for that. Or like, you know, if he wanted to, you know, build cabinets or build a place to put the TV, like he was going to Home Depot, he was buying the wood and he was, you know, finding a way to put it together. So I remember 
just so many times of just kind of being by his side and, you know, him letting me make cuts on occasion, him letting me like, you know, screw something in or what have you. Right. And so I have just very early memories of putting things together and then always having this desire from there, this curiosity about how things fit, right. How things fit and where things fit. Um, and that goes for the built environment and for like people and for myself, you know, I, I grew up, um, as a kid of Haitian immigrants and didn't quite fit in with Haitian kids, black kids, white kids or anywhere. And so this question of like, how, where am I and what is my place? And then where do I fit in within the context of like this world that I am in um, has always been something that is really close to me and something I think about a lot. So I think it goes back early on, but there was always this engagement with like, you can take things apart and you can put them back together. And there are ways to do that. Um, and that goes back to like my early childhood. Like so it. even before I started Quorum, I was, you know, building furniture out of recycled construction waste. So I was dumpster diving after after school and I would build dining room tables and, you know, just like being able to look at a thing and see something else. Right. Be able to see function, be able to see things that can be put together in different ways. That's just always been a part of, I think, a function of my brain and how it works. I like it. I like it. So so one thing I think we, we skipped over, I skipped over a little bit is where when you mentioned fit, where where are you like where where is where 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 is Topher? where is quorum houses um and we'll talk about the work in a minute but but yeah geographically where is where are you where is your focus and then yeah we'll start there yeah no so we are in durham north carolina with a focus on durham north carolina and so that's where that's where i live mm -hmm. that's where the majority of the quorum team also lives and this is where almost I would say 95% of our work happens within and around Durham County and particularly in the urban tier. So like kind of near the city center Perfect. of Durham and, and that's our focus. Yeah. And then, and then with the, with the work, describe if you could, well, of course you can, but describe if you would, what, uh, mm -hmm. what is it that you're working on and, and what yeah. is it that you see as the goal of, or goals uh, of, of quorum mm -hmm. houses? No, it's great. And I, I think I can, you know, this wasn't part of the elevator pitch, but I like take us back to those early days of quorum, like take us back like three, four years ago to 2019. And kind of the forces that I was feeling was as a teacher with um, a spouse and two kids and trying to live on the salary that I had, it was just immensely difficult, right? Um, and so there was this just kind of living paycheck to paycheck and trying to see if we can make ends meet month to month and how are we going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody loves the idea of passive income. And so, you know, and rentals are not necessarily passive income, but you know, in my mind, this was a way to kind of help make ends meet for me and my family initially, right? Building a backyard home. Mm -hmm. You know, we had this lot, we owned our home and we had this space, right? And I was like, we could make that space cash flow. Yeah. Um, but it was hard, right? As somebody who didn't make a lot of money, I would go, if I asked for a loan from a bank, the answer was no. And so there was this problem of you know debt to income ratio of my salary these barriers of entry and so my modes of being able to build wealth were very much you know cut off by some of these like larger institutions and forces that, that keep people out of accessing capital so i would say that one thing quorum does is we really think just deeply and long and hard on how do we create equitable access to capital? What are the things that we need to get folks who have land, but maybe not the salary or credit score 
how can we get them to a place where they could potentially build something in their backyard if they're their landowners right um so that's like one piece of it and then the other piece is you know when you build an adu which stands for accessory dwelling unit right you don't have land acquisition costs you have just the construction costs and so this can be a naturally occurring affordable way to create housing stock right um because right now if you want like another rental you're you're paying for the building itself but then also the land underneath it and right now those are very very expensive and so that was a big part of it too. Like we can create housing that is gonna just naturally be more affordable. And if we build it small and keep our construction costs down, the more affordable it can be. And then the work of Quorum became, how do we now you know, put all these pieces together, right? So we try to find homeowners who are aligned with this mission of breaking cycles of injustice through affordable housing, who are willing to and want to share their backyard right we we match them with capital that works for this venture right and then pairing all of that up with a tenant who is housing insecure and needs housing right and then within that work there are going to be other partnerships with different nonprofits or different folks who are going to help maybe provide supportive services to those tenants right um so that's the work that we do it's like you know it's, it's threefold of you know the constructing of the adu itself mm. the financing of it and then assisting as much as possible with the placement of somebody in those homes. So, so that was a lot and that's a lot of really cool stuff. And I, I gotta, I gotta just take a second to, to point something out that I think is, um, is just commendable, right? You had a challenge or an issue in your own life and, and you, you had it, you had the idea to do something about it. And then not only did you have the idea, you just, you went out and did it and, and seemingly you found success in that. And then it turned into a whole nother life pivot, right? So you, I, my sense was you, you didn't start off that or maybe did you, how, how much of, how much of the thought of making this into a business or, or I guess transitioning out of teaching, how, how much of, uh, the, of that thought process existed when you first started out? It's, a, it's such a good question. And it's hard for me to even say, because I think I go, I've gone back and I've like read through some of my notes from that time. And there was very much like initially, okay, like you're in this financial position, like you need to do something. Yeah. Right. Um, but then there was also, oh, like once the idea came that this is a something that I can do there, there came that, oh, this could be replicated, but it wasn't necessarily like fully fleshed out nor was it something that I was going to pursue. I think at the time it was just, can I make ends meet so I can keep on being a teacher? Yeah. Because I do love the classroom and I do love education. And it's so, it's so thrilling. It, and it has been thrilling for me to like, you know, go through just books and ideas with, uh, with teams, right? It's, it's, a, it's a joy. Yeah. So um, I don't know, like I can't say that it was always the idea for this to spin out into a company, but some things that allowed that to happen, I would say like there was a ton of luck involved in that you know um, a grandparent so i said like a bank said no banks would not lend me money when i was trying to build this first one in my backyard and so one of my students without me asking they just like connected me with their grandparent yeah just randomly said hey you should have coffee with my, my grandfather and apparently she had been talking to him like i love my theology teacher he's super cool like you should just hang out with him so we end up having coffee and i'm talking to him about my life my background and bring up this whole adu thing and like you know how I'm, what i'm trying to do and that 
I've been watching folks get priced out of my neighborhood and I want to see uh, an affordable unit in my backyard and it'll help me and my family cash flow. But, you know, it's expensive and I don't have the capital. And he was like, let me fund it. You know, let me fund it and, and we'll find out how to pay me back. Right. And so this world of, of private investment and private capital, that 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 moment, that coffee, right, opened my eyes to this world that I didn't even know existed at the time. You know, I knew it existed tangentially. I did not know that I had access to it. Right. And so that bit of access really did change the trajectory of my life. It changed this from being this is one thing I'm going to do in my backyard to this could potentially be something that large swaths of people, particularly people who maybe have been locked out of access to capital, have access to, right? And that's been the goal. That's been the vision. I want people who were in my shoes to have that pathway where it's just not so based on luck, right? Like this one student with this one particular grandparent and this one particular time in his life when he was able to just cut a check, right? Like that's so many right things having to happen all at once. Um, When it could just be when that could already exist, right? There could have already been a natural avenue for that to happen. And I wanted to just, I wanted to create that avenue. And that's what Quorum, I hope, is this like place where people can come to accomplish the missional goals that they want to accomplish within housing. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think there, there's absolutely a component of luck, but I, I think a couple other things too, is like one, one you had, um, you know, you had a home that you owned, and you had land, you had access to the land, right? Mm-hmm. You had had control of the site. Absolutely. Um, you you also, my sense, were were um, putting in work and and putting out. I don't know if it's good vibes or whatever, but like you were building relationships <laughs> with your student, right? And so that they were in a position right. to make that comment to their grandparent. Um, you you showed up and went to the meeting, right? I mean, there there's there's lots of components of luck, but but there's also a component of getting out there and doing it. And my, my sense would be leaning on community and, and sharing a story and, and casting a vision that, you know, th- those things all kind of work together. And I think that's one of the most exciting right. things about, um, and I'm, I'm biased towards the built environment, but as, as we, we make these changes or as these changes, I was going to say as these changes happen, but I, I don't think the changes happen. I, I think there's, there's work that was done um outside of 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 you that that made you know adus a possibility right there there's advocacy work that's that's still ongoing absolutely part Mm -hmm. of that conversation right maybe you had this idea but but adus weren't you know legal (laughs) in your neighborhood and this this story has a very different outcome right um and and the flip side of that is true maybe you maybe you grew up in a world in a community where where the idea of asking someone for capital for an idea wasn't as big of a of a hurdle as it seems like it was for you i mean that there's there's people out there that you know probably have have asked for money for all sorts of things their whole life and gotten it right so so there's um it it plays it plays both ways but i think one of the things that's so encouraging in in the environment that i'm seeing out there in the triangle is you are seeing some of these barriers come down you are seeing people enter enter the arena if you will of the built environment and and um come with creative ideas and creative goals and missions that that aren't typical or that weren't typical or maybe that used to be typical that aren't anymore i mean i i would i would guess there was a world 100 years ago where lots of people rented out a room to somebody um who who needed a place to stay or because they wanted to have some extra income um and th- those those systems have changed over time but you're seeing more of that and the more I think we get people involved and community involved 
in these not just conversations but efforts right as you as you step forward and do this i guarantee you there's somebody else out there that sees that and goes oh maybe i could do that and and maybe they're in durham maybe they're in in chapel hill or raleigh or maybe they're in california or, or somewhere else entirely and and that idea spreads and so again I'm, I'm just a big huge fan of of reducing these barriers because when when you reduce the barriers more people participate more ideas turn into reality and um i think we're better for it so anyway i'll get off my soapbox on that but i, I think there's it's an encouraging mix of of both luck and place and time but also just gumption and effort and and i don't want you to and I'm not saying that you do think that, but I think that's important to note too, is like, even, even with all the luck and ideas, like you, you, you did something about it, which I think is, um, critical in all this. So, so let's, let's step into that whole process a bit more. So walk us through, if you could, you know, I think more the, the conversation around accessory dwelling units and ADUs is, is more, um, prevalent than it used to be but what what was your process of of maybe that first accessory dwelling unit and then what is what is the process today of of going from adu as an idea to adu as home that's great that's a great question and so in terms of you know my initial process versus now right it was different to do it for yourself versus doing it for partner homeowners who want to take part right um but initially, like, I was fortunate that Durham, you know, in 2018, um, they passed some legislation. Um, I am the, the title of it is, is I'm blanking on it, but basically it allowed ADUs uh, across Durham. And so the legislation piece was already in place for when I wanted to, to build my ADU. And they have, you know, a, a permit that you apply for that's relatively straightforward and simple, you know, and you just got to have, you know, a well-designed plan that meets all of the, the NC code requirements. You submit that to the city, they approve it, and then you get building, right? And then you have kind of these inspection points after foundation, after framing, after your rough-in of your HVAC, of your electrical, of your plumbing. Um, and then, you know, you have your few more inspections after you kind of get drywall up, your insulation, and all that good stuff. And then you have your final certificate of occupancy that you get at the end when you pass all your final inspections. And then, you know, and then that's it. Then it's ready to be inhabited. And I think that system is no different today than it was when I was building it. Probably has been that way for a while. Um, but in terms of how it goes with like partners that so homeowners that we've partnered with, right? And so now we have eight live units across Durham. And the way that's worked typically is um, for whatever reason, a person finds the Quorum website and they reach out, you know, for a consultation. And typically there'll be just a good bit, I would say maybe a few months of just conversation with that homeowner about, you know, what are your, what's your vision? What are your goals? What are your hopes for this backyard space? What made you want to reach out? Like, what do you dream? Like, what are you envisioning back here? Right. And so trying to open up the imagination and that's like a, a couple months of process. And then internally within Quorum, we have a few design plans that meet different price points. And so we have them, we have a studio unit, a one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, and try to kind of be able to serve as many people on the tenant side as, as possible, but then also on an economic level of what can a homeowner afford, right? We try to have stuff in all those ranges. Mm -hmm. And so they'll pick a plan that meets what kind of capital they have access to, and then we'll start that process, right? So then we'll have some kind of design, which we'll think about placement of the unit on the land, like what's gonna make the most sense, what's going to allow this tenant to feel like they belong and, and to create that kind of 
really communal environment in this backyard. Um, and then once we have all that set, we can begin to put together all the permit documents, plot plan, which is kind of where you're mapping the ADU in relation to the main house and everything else. Um, put all your permit docs together, submit, and then we kind of go through that process, right? Building, getting inspections done. And, and then once we start getting towards the end, we start really thinking about who's going to live in this home. And that's usually a conversation between the partner homeowner and myself. Uh, you know, is there somebody in your network, in your community that is housing insecure that you'd like for them to live in this home? And a lot of times that's what happens. Folks have somebody in mind. Um, other instances, uh, we've had homeowners partner with Church World Service to house refugees, right? And that was like where their heart was oriented. And so Church World Service comes in with who that tenant's going to be, plus with some supportive services for them, mm -hmm. which has been awesome, you know? And then, so that's that's the process on on how that works. It's pretty straightforward. And and you mentioned um, a couple things in there that, that I was struck by. One was the use of the word placement which i think you know is is where the, the house sits you know in relation mm -hmm. to other things right the the perimeter the lot lines the the main house mm -hmm. trees you know mm -hmm. <laughs> other things there's the physical placement but the, you also use the word belonging a lot and and my mm -hmm. sense is those two are connected and, and i would love to hear your thoughts on how you think about or maybe what are, what are some of the important aspects of placement um that really make a home a home for for someone to belong and not just you know not just a a building right i mean there there's a i think a big difference between the two but how how do you think about placement um uh, both both from the physical form and um other forms to to make that a place where it's a home and somebody belongs right oh it's it's a great question and you know I know you love the built environment and, and so do I. And the built environment, a lot of times it it shapes our imagination, right? Like I think about roads a ton and transportation and how like the roads that exist, which none of us, I mean, probably maybe somebody in here designs and builds and decides where roads are placed, but I don't know. I know I've never had say into where roads are going to be, but here they are. Yeah. Like here are the roads and you are going to navigate your day if you are somebody who goes from place to place by where these roads are, where the sidewalks are, you know, and that just, that's so important because our lives are, are shaped by the world that we live in, by the spaces that we move in. Right. And so how does that space then communicate to our experience of the world? And, and when I use that word belonging, right, like I want for myself and all people to feel this sense of not only like, is this, you know, my home, but that this place is inviting, it is, it is for me, and it is, you know, and there are aspects of it that are going to lead to me being intertwined and tangled or what have you with the other people and things in this space, mm -hmm. right? And so we'll think about like where trees are and where the porch is in relation to that tree and where shade is going to be and like does the porch of the ADU face the back porch of that house so there's this like interconnection and dialogue between these two buildings that we hope might lead to, you know, interconnection and dialogue between the tenant and the homeowner, right? Yeah. And so those are the things because I think those are going to allow for, um, yeah, uh, allow just opportunity for connection and interaction. What, what, did I, we want. 
What about outside of, and again, maybe this is, this is outside of your purview, but as you were talking about roads and connections and sidewalks, I, I think it's, um, may, maybe it hasn't been as much of the conversation historically as it has been recently, but I think we're, I think we as a, as a community, as a group of people are maybe awakening a little bit more towards the, um, the ways in which we have established intentionally or unintentionally barriers to belonging, right? You mentioned sidewalk, right? If, if I'm a person who is walking from one place to another and the sidewalk mm -hmm. stops, right? Like that's a pretty clear mm -hmm. indication of like, well, you know, either we didn't think all the way through or we actively don't want people to walk here. And so, so you right. know, this is not a place for you as, as a pedestrian to belong. Mm -hmm. I think, I think mm -hmm. that's coming a bit more to the conversation, probably not where it needs to be, but it's coming up a bit more, but that to me is, is a, um, is, is a, is a barrier that maybe it's, you know, it's reactive, right? So we, we can, we can address, we can react to those barriers, but are there other aspects? Maybe you want to talk about that, those, those barriers, but maybe also is, are there aspects of, of proactivity where we can ensure, like, how do, how do we make it, how do we make our communities more uh, either welcoming or more a place for people to belong? Like, what, what can right. we do, right? We can certainly, we can stop cutting off sidewalks, but like, what, what can we do? Like, what, what are the proactive ways that you think we can make it a more of a place of belonging? No, that's so great. And I am no expert in this at all. Goodness gracious. Um, I feel, you know, I feel really like privileged and lucky to be working in this space and being able to ask and think about these questions. But I know that, you know, this is, it's an ever flowing thing. Um, but a question that comes to my mind a lot in terms of what you just talked about is like, who, who are we protecting? Or uh, even who are we centering, right? In the placement of these different things. Like when we are placing a home in a backyard or when we are deciding the width of a sidewalk or when we are deciding where a bus stop is going to be or the design of a bus stop, who are we prioritizing and centering? What do we hope occurs by this thing that we're doing? You know, and where my mind goes with that is, you know, we want to be thinking about like that person who doesn't have somebody advocating for them. Um, I think about folks who are, are physically disabled, you know, and what are the different aspects in our built environment that would allow for them to not be excluded, right, from, from any place. And typically, and, and, and same for, you know, just pick any group of, pick any marginalized group, right? What are the things that we're putting into the built environment that are not thinking about that group of people? I think this is just like why it's so important for, in terms of what we can do to be proactive is being involved and engaged in those conversations. So I think right now in Durham, um, for the past year, they've been working on the comprehensive plan and, you know, what is going to be, what are, what are the ordinances, rules, and things that are going to be happening in the city, right? And how is that going to be allocated? Who's it going to center, you know? And so if you could have a large group of people, uh, people who are representative of those groups, having and being in those conversations and then the people who actually have the power to then make those changes actually listening to those voices right like that's huge because there is also like in america right i mean a lot of these decisions were made by people who had the power and wanted to prioritize not those marginalized groups yeah. right but themselves right and what was going to be uh most beneficial for them 
you know, something I used to, when I was a teacher, I used to always teach about the building of 147 and how there was a group of people, the entire, you know, Haiti community, really black folks in Durham who were not only not considered, but really the opposite, where it was just like intentionally harmed yeah. by that, you know? And so what we do in the built environment and who we are thinking about, who we're considering, I mean, it has huge ramifications for the future. Um, like I have this map of Durham from 1937 that shows um, basically where they put white people and where they put black people. And it's kind of highlighted, like, you know, these are the black areas, these are the white areas. And Durham to this day looks a lot like that racial map. And so the decisions we make about the built environment uh, have really, like 1937 was almost 100 years ago now, right? Like that has long-standing ramifications. So I think that's that's huge. And, and like you said earlier in our conversation, um, when you bring more voices to the table, when you remove those barriers, right, it allows more creativity, more ideas to come. And if there's access, right, and, and if those ideas can actually be acted upon, um, you get new things, right? Because different folks who've not um, basically had a chance to play in that playground are getting to do that and they're doing it differently because that's what makes sense for them. Well, and that's one of the things that um, I think is often, well, maybe, uh, I was about to make a judging statement that may not be true. One of the things I think it's easy to overlook when you live from, from a built environment perspective where I think ADUs and the work that you're doing is, is fantastic is by definition, adding an ADU to the backyard or front yard or side yard, adding, adding an ADU to a neighborhood of single family homes is diversifying the housing stock, which may not mm -hmm. seem like a big deal. But what that does, it opens up the door to allow for, I think, a broader diversity of, and not just race or, or other, but just, you know, if, if it was all homeowners and now you have a rental opportunity, well, now you're going to have a renter. So you're just diversifying the, the, mm -hmm. the people that live in that neighborhood, which makes it, I think, a whole heck of a lot easier to not only bring people to the table for conversations, but see it with, with your, with your eyes as, as both the person who, who's on the, the property and you mentioned uh, having a conversation between the ADU and, and the, the home, right? Like they're the single family home and the ADU, right? There, there's a dialogue there, but also as the neighbor, right? If I had, if I have a neighbor who moves into my neighborhood in my neighbor's ADU, who is, mm -hmm. who is, who is living a different stage of life or type of life or whatever than I'm living and the rest of our neighbors might be living. Well, now all of a sudden, maybe it becomes more apparent that that um, sidewalk, for instance, that went to nowhere is a problem because I see, I drive by and I see that person. Well, wait a minute, why are they crossing the street? Oh, because the sidewalk ends. And now I'm saying, not only does, does, it, does it personalize it, but it's like, okay, well, I don't want Sally to have to cross the street anymore. So I'm going to now call mm -hmm. you know, my, my town council person and say, hey guys, we need to fix the sidewalk because it's not just an idea it's it's Sally, and I'm like thinking of my neighbor Sally, who I maybe not was wasn't thinking of before because Sally might not have been there before because the ADU wasn't there before. You know, it's just it's a it's a it's a very um, broad ranging and kind of reinforcing cycle of community that I think we're we are lacking in a lot of places. And as as I don't want to oversimplify that it has to do with ADUs, but man, that really does open the door to a lot of very interesting dialogues and conversations. Uh, that we have historically, I think, been shutting down. And um, right. 
I, I just, yeah. I, again, I, I think that's just one of the fascinating, people think it's just, oh, about, it's just about, you know, ADU. I, it, it's, it's so much broader than I think. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned single family zoning, like, you know, you, you read about the history of single family zoning and, yep. and what that does to our, our psyche, right? To our imagination, this like, okay, this property is mine and it's my one home and I have my fence and these are, this is mine, you know, yep. like that, is what that sort of zoning right does to our thinking um and i don't want to have like a, a simplistic conversation about like ownership and property because it's difficult right and there needs to be boundaries and there needs to be like nuanced conversations about that um but what adding an adu does like you said it, it goes way beyond just like adding housing stock but yeah it, it brings about a whole new set of people living in that neighborhood and it changes the, the owner's perspective of what is mine mm -hmm. you know and i think that's huge right like what do we virtuize and i think in america we've typically lifted up self-sufficiency we've typically lifted up and virtuized um you know ownership and having things that are, are yours um we we haven't virtuized sharing yeah. that's not been the thing that we lift up Right. And so quorum is an attempt to, to lift up that notion. And how do we share and what do we share? Right. And, and can we share something as intimate as as home? You know, can, can we share that? And so I'm just I've been really grateful at the response to quorum and the homeowners who want to participate, um, which was my hunch that people would. But, you know, to see people kind of want to have that conversation and acknowledge like, yeah, you know, I, I bought this home. I live in this neighborhood, but I do wish that we had more socioeconomic diversity, more racial diversity, more, you know, list that list me go on and on of the various forms of diversities. And so, right, like, and now there's a way for that to happen, you know, and yeah. It's so. it's the the idea of, of sharing of home was something, as you were saying that, like, I, I do think my, my, my first thought was, well, surely everyone's benefited from this idea of sharing of place in in the form of and and you 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 said you know single family zoning, there are, there are some places that say well this is you know this is a single family community and it's only for that so it's not for renters it's not for multifamily you know mm -hmm. that's yeah I struggle with that line of thinking but even even if you were to say okay well it's a residential you know neighborhood and, and there's there's issues and challenges with that type of of thought as well but my first thought was well you know I, th I always think it's interesting in, when talking about these dynamics of home ownership is that you know people say well this is you know this is, this is a, a this is a neighborhood for people who own their homes most people at some point rented so like <laughs> most people saw benefit from from sharing of home in that perspective but even before that everybody to my knowledge well maybe not i, I would be i would be willing to bet that almost everybody benefited from shared housing at some point right because i was born into a family whether my my parents owned or rented I was certainly sharing, you know, they were sharing that home with me. And so this idea of like, it's mine and it's mine and it's not yours and it shouldn't be shared. Like I, uh, that I struggle to see how people, how, how we have so much existing discourse around people turning a blind eye to that dynamic of that. Like nobody, nobody, even, even if you've always owned a home and lived in a home that theoretically was owned, you know, Again, there, there's complicated dynamics there, but like I don't know, man. It's everyone's benefited from shared dynamics in housing at some point, and yeah, yeah. I, I, I struggle to see how we how we benefit as a community by uh, pushing that away.
to say right. very slowly. I mean, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, I'll be honest, I think it's like a lie that we tell ourselves, you yeah. know, like this idea of, of ownership, right? Like, I mean, all of it is predicated on all sorts of, of other lies, you know, I think about the land, you know, because in the, you know, something I advocate for everybody to go look at, I think it's it's called bullcity150.org. Um, but it was a big study that came out in 2019 about housing injustice in Durham. And it's a, it's a beautiful little online exhibit that you can look at that goes back and even shows pictures of King George's land grants that he was giving out in, in North Carolina and tracts of land that were never his to give away or sell, right? right. Not give away, that were never his to sell, right? That, that were just, he decided upon, uh, oh, we're here we're white. This is ours now. Yeah. And, and then crafting, you know, cutting up the land and then selling it this like super foreign concept to the folks who were living in and with and belonging to the land, as opposed to taking belonging, uh, taking ownership of the land. Right. I think that it's such a, it's, it's so different. And, and, and we live, we live in that, right. I, I live in the reality that the, the home I own, the property that is, is mine, quote unquote, right it's it's stolen it is it is part of this history of of theft and how can we be present to that as we then still have to wake up every day and live and move forward right like you know what do we do i have a one client um homeowner partner and what she's gonna do she's already done it it's in her deed you know she's going to upon her death um give the land back it's gonna go to the Okaniki tribe and I'm like oh that's really really fascinating like this is a it's one person doing one thing but you know what would that look like um if those were things that we actually allowed ourselves to to think about to yeah. process to be open to um and so my, my my hope I hope I have with Quorum is that just that this act of sharing your backyard leads to these bigger broader questions of like what are we doing you know and and what are the ways that we can actually share because what i'm so convinced of about the world is that it is abundant is that there is just way more than is needed for everybody to have what they need you know there's just no reason for anybody to not have housing in durham across the triangle in america or anywhere right there there is enough and so how do we connect the enough to the people who need it well, that's that 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 abundance mindset. I think is critical, and and you mentioned it earlier too about like what's being centered, who, what and who is being centered, and what and who is being protected. Where that's part of the discourse you see all the time. It's like, well, I'm I'm worried that this change is going to harm, you know, me or my neighborhood or our property values or our quality of life. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but I mean, really? Like, is that <laughs> like is it is it truly going to you know if 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 a, if if something down the street from from my home again whether or not we have a discussion about who owns it or what's owned but like is it really mm-hmm. going to harm me like is that is that my chief concern and um i don't know that's it's a, one of many things in the built environment that i, that I struggle with and and you know my, my sense is no and like i mean i I've, I have discussions all the time of like well you know it's we, we need to protect the change in the neighborhood it's like well what if what if the people who lived in that area before you did felt the same like your house wouldn't like at some point there was a change that allowed you to live where you live um mm-hmm. and I, 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 I struggle with that and i don't know how to and maybe that's part of it it's like what, what what do you think are some of the ways that we can help um advance that conversation or or move past this idea of i you know there can't be change because it's going to harm me or it's going to you know how, how do we how do we uh cultivate an abundance mindset in the built environment maybe that's the question 
That's a small <laughs> that's a, question. That's such a big question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's interesting, right? I can I can talk about like my own way of doing that. Yeah, right? please, please. Things as simple as taking walks. And again, once we're coming back to this idea of attention, right? Like noticing what's being built and then asking the questions of like who's building it and why is it being built and those kinds of things. But just, but taking walks, like being outside and, and walking, um, which you mentioned, right? Sidewalks end and like the, the access to walkability is, is lacking in a lot of parts of our city, right? Yeah. And so, so that's the whole, that's, that's a conversation. But I think walking and, and looking is just, is huge. Um, because when you do that, right, you do, you, you begin to just, you, you just notice different things. You notice space and spaces and you notice what could be, um, and I think that's that's huge. So I think it begins with, yeah, noticing. And and then beyond that, right, is just one thing, I, again, I love about walking is like nature, right? Trees and, and air and, and all of just what is, you know, a part of all the human activity and the bustle of, of humanity, you know, you have like the natural world that is and has been existing for, you know, billions of years. And, and 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 does it without violence and i mean and that's not true there's there's violence in, in the natural world Sometimes. but uh, without the like yeah yeah for sure for sure but without like the the same ways in which humans go about doing some of those things with like the lines that we draw because because what humans do i think that's unique is like we draw imaginary boundaries that then we will fight to the death over, yeah right um and i think that that these things they just they still get in our way and so being able to free our imaginations um, and recognize that no, like truly the world is not scarce, that there is enough out there, but our ability to tap into it and, and what we're able to see that is it's fractured, it's broken. Um, and on, on both sides, like both on folks who are impoverished and both on people who are excruciatingly wealthy, yeah. right? There is, like you mentioned a lot, of, like oftentimes not exclusively, but oftentimes this this idea of like not in my backyard comes from folks who they want to protect what it is that they feel, they believe that they've earned, that is theirs, right? And they want to protect that because they think it could be taken away. Um, you know, there's this thing about like wealth, like when you build a lot of it, you know, you, you pivot from just making a lot more to then wanting and needing to protect, protect yep. what you've gotten. And so how do we shift that, right? That That desire to protect away from the resources that we've accumulated and, and stored away towards like, okay, now how do I protect my neighbor? How do I connect my well-being to my neighbor's well-being? Yeah. You know, and so it involves knowing your neighbor. So like you, you mentioned Sally, right? It, it involves knowing Sally and then being willing to, yeah, allow Sally in enough to allow her plight to be your plight. And I think that is, that's huge. And, and I think that also goes back to, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan, as you may have guessed about the, the pedestrian experience and walking and, and I will never forget as long as I live, there was, uh, it was in Raleigh, but I was driving around a neighborhood one time and this thought crossed my mind. There's somebody walking in the street in front of me. And I was, I was just, I was driving slow. I wasn't really trying to go. I was just exploring, looking, looking around and, and driving. But, um, there was somebody walking in the street and it dawned, I was like, why is, what the heck? Like, why would you be walking in the street? And I just remember thinking, and I don't even know why I reacted so heavily to it, but I was like, what a, what a crazy thing. Like who walks in the street? And then just as soon as that thought, like, I mean, <laughs> entered my brain, I took the second to look and realize, oh, because unlike in my neighborhood, there are no sidewalks on these streets. And so then mm -hmm. I was like, well, Jed, I'm, I'd be willing to guess if, if you were walking in this neighborhood 
you would probably also be walking in the street instead of, you know, somebody's front yard on a sloped hill. Like, of course you would. And, and again, I, I think it's, um, if we can slow down and if we can, um, experience our places at a, at a pedestrian or at a street level, um, whether it's walking or biking or whatever. I mean, you, you see so many of those challenges. You also see all the whimsy. I mean, some of the most whimsical experiences I've ever had in places and spaces have been on foot just because you pass by. It's a slower pace, and you see things, and you appreciate yeah. things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anyway, that's I'm a big fan of walking. Um, let's let's pull yep. that thread a little bit more on on this community. And you'd mentioned before before we started talking about uh, kind of neighbor well-being, and, and we've, we've talked a little bit about protecting and and I don't know and this is not a question so much as a statement but I, I do wonder if if part of that idea of you 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 build wealth and you try to accumulate accumulate wait for it accumulate um you know what's yours but then you get to this point where now all of a sudden it's defense and you've got you've got to protect it I I do wonder if if knowing what enough is is maybe part of that of like okay well even even if you know even even if I lost my home um, yeah. I'd probably still find a place to live. Like I'd be okay. Like, and that's enough. Therefore, I don't, I don't necessarily need to be hyper concerned. And, and again, that's a place of privilege to be able to say that. But like, if if there was if there was a fire at my house right now, um, mm-hmm. I do not believe that I would be living on the street. And so, you know, does that help me? I don't know. Does does that give me a, a does that make me less precious about my neighborhood and protecting my neighborhood and being worried about you know, cause I just, I know what enough is and I know I'll, I'll probably be okay. I don't, I don't know if that's part of the conversation, but how do, how do we, I don't know. How, how, how do you see examples of, of where people have, um, maybe made a change or maybe seen, seen the ability to help outside of their own little areas? Um, and where have you seen mm-hmm. kind of breakdowns and where the decisions we've made are, have caused harm instead of help? to those outside of our own little communities. Right. Yeah. I mean, my mind goes back to growing up, you know, my nuclear family was my mother, my father, my sister, myself. And, um, but growing up, we always had probably at least one or two cousins, um, living in our house with us and at different points, you know, different, uh, aunts and uncles, you know, people would pass through the house. And I, I, I think about this, yeah, this, this just sharing ethos that was there um, and, and that the family knew about, right? That the family knew the family's resources were to be shared yeah. um, with the family. And so, and I've seen this too on, on the neighborhood level, right? Like I, you know, in, in our in our neighborhood, well, our two streets, we have a little like WhatsApp channel and, you know, if somebody, people have reached out, hey, I, I need a wheelbarrow. I don't have one. And it's like something as simple as like everybody's on there and somebody in the neighborhood has a wheelbarrow, but like you have the wealth of the community there and in place. Um, and that's our two streets. And I'm working with other folks in the broader neighborhood that I live in, the West End and Lion Park, um, to form, you know, a broader network of, of neighbors so that we can benefit off of community and we can benefit off of the wealth that we've all built, you know, because it's all, like I said, it's all there. Um, and then in terms of areas I see it fail us, um, this is not going to be as concrete, but more so in terms of our inability, and I'll say my inability and my own fear in 
not being self-sufficient, right? I can be afraid to ask for help. And I've met many people who've been afraid to ask for help and will suffer in silence because we virtuize self-sufficiency. We virtuize not needing to ask for help. When I, the truth, right? The truth that I think we hide from is all of us have needed help. All of us owe a debt to whoever that is beyond calculating, right? Like I think about my own parents, the fact that I'm alive and they allowed me existence, uh, you know, and they provided home and food for however many years, right? If I looked at that as transactional, I would owe my parents, like, you know, I don't know, millions of dollars. <laughs> right, I don't know how much the number right. would be, right? But like, and not only the like, not only like, you know, the free housing and food that they provided, but then also like dealing with toddler me and then teenage me and all these different versions of me, right? Like there's a debt there that is incalculable. Oh, yeah. And it's there for, for all of us, right? Like, you know, and we cannot quantify it. And yet there are areas where like, we kind of just put that reality aside and say like, no, this is, this is mine and this is what is owed. And, and, and we're going to like really kind of calculate. And, and that thing that stops us, that stops us from being willing to be that vulnerable and ask for that help and, and be that straightforward. And I think part of it is that we know that in this country, the way it works is a lot of the folks at that high level are going to see their wealth in that way. And so if you make that ask, right, it's going to be like, well, why, why are you asking? You know, like, I think that some of that has been reinforced of like, if you're in this hole, you know, it is your fault. And yeah. what, what did you do to put yourself here? Right. We don't ask that. The, the first question is not like, oh, yeah, here, like, <laughs> I have plenty here. You're good. Yeah. You know, let me share. Right. And so I think that that is just a broader cultural issue. And, you know, like, I mentioned my graduate work was in, in theology and I, I, I've worked in churches and I, and I see this playing and at work in, in the place where I think it should be the most, the opposite, right? Where people should have the most transparency, but you have, you know, in, in church, people who are going to, you know, hide how much wealth they have and people who are going to hide the poverty and the struggle that they're living in because they're afraid. Yeah. They're afraid of how they're going to be seen and right. And like our world systems encourage this putting up of a front, this being put together all of the time. And that's just not reality. And it shouldn't be reality, right? And and yeah, so I think that is that is where I see harm. I, I think about, you know, there's a book called Poverty by America by Matthew yep. Desmond. Yep. And he talks about the amount of money uh, in terms of like social services, like in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, um, and the different things that are available that doesn't get used up because people are just unwilling to go sign up for those things. Right. Like that is a, that is a cultural and like almost spiritual problem that we have. Right. And so how do we shift our cultural mindset to making it okay to have deep, big needs, financial needs. And then for us to get to the point where it's like, it is incumbent upon us to make sure that everybody's needs are met because it's super silly that they're not, you know, it's very silly that people go hungry. Yeah. in this particular world that we live in. It is very silly that people don't have a place to stay in this world. It's complex, but it's also absurd. Well, it's, it's in that, <laughs> your, your example, when you were talking about your neighborhood, you know, and, and, and sharing the wheelbarrow and, and all, you know, asking for the, like it, you use the word, it benefits us, right? Having this, having access to this benefits us. And I, I wanted to interrupt and I, I'm trying to be better at not interrupting. So I didn't, but like, there's a little bit of pushback too of like, <clears throat> If I'm your neighbor and you need a wheelbarrow and you put it up on the listserv and say, hey, can I borrow a wheelbarrow? And I give it to you or lend it to you. 
you know, does that benefit you? Absolutely. But does it also benefit me where I'm like, hey, I had this thing and I got to help Topher out. Like, that's kind of cool. That feels good too. And so I, I do think it's this this reinforcing cycle that we have access to if if we if we go down that path of, of community of, of when you ask for help, you're also helping other people. Like it feels good to help out a neighbor. It feels good to help somebody out. And and I think the challenge is, and it's bigger than a wheelbarrow, obviously, but if I have a wheelbarrow, I can't necessarily go around every day and ask all of my neighbors, hey, does anybody need a wheelbarrow? I got one. You can, you know, I think what I could do right. though, what I could absolutely do is a month in advance go, hey, Topher, you know, I need to borrow a cup of sugar. And I've opened up that yeah. door. I've made a small request of you, which now implicitly or explicitly you say, okay, well, if I ever need something from Jed, I'm, I can ask because he's asked me first. Absolutely. And so then you're going to say, okay, hey, Jed, you know, I happen, I'm, I'm, you know, laying out mulch this weekend. Do you, you know, could you help or, or do you have a wheelbarrow? Sure. And so I, I think maybe that's the answer. Maybe the answer is we, cause, cause then I, I can't make you ask me for help, or right? I can't make you ask me for a wheelbarrow, but I can ask you for help. So maybe that's the, maybe that's the, the the spark that's needed of maybe we just all need to build a practice of ourselves of asking for help more often. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And, and I think, Oh man, like, yeah, you're so right. (laughs) Just the practice of asking for help. I think that would a great book title. I'm sure somebody's already written that book, but (laughs) we we just launched the project. No, but you're so right. And and what it is too is like, it's not so transactional because it's going to take into account that reality of like, you know, you might borrow or that person might borrow eight cups of sugar before you, they get to their one ask, sure. right? There is this not like keeping tabs, but this just recognition that like my posture towards you is one of sharing. And so my posture towards you is likewise going to be one of sharing there. So there's mutuality, there's reciprocity, right? And, but it's not, you know, this, your value to me is $38 and seven cents. Right, right. right? Because, because that's it how much is, sugar I gave you, right. Exactly, exactly. It is this not as intense, you know, it's this less tangible thing. And I, and I recognize that like capital and, you know, being able to account $38 and seven cents, you know, the function of it is it creates ease, right? Like there's a reason we don't have to like trade, you know, my flowers that I grow in my garden for, you know, a, a slice of your goat's meat, you know, like I'm like, <laughs> Hey, I'll give you flowers. You give me goat meat. That's right, and right. like, money says like, yeah, I might grow flowers and I might sell them over here, but I can just take this coinage or whatever. And I can then get meat, you know, yeah. over here. And, and that's it. Yeah. And that's, that is helpful. Like I, I'm not saying that we like get rid of money and we all just kind of like share all the resources that we have. But I do think that, that more that we lost a lot by separating ourselves so much um, from those like more tangible modes of exchange, right? Like, and so there, there was something that we lost and I don't think we know exactly what we lost, right? Like it's at this point where we're so removed from that way of being. And so now it is just like, how do I start cultivating a practice of asking for help so that I can get more used to this way of being, maybe I can depend less on the grocery store and I can start depending more on neighbors and maybe we can have like a community listserv of like who's growing what in their gardens and what's going to be growing at these different times and like maybe we can share some of those resources amongst ourselves right there's a lot of these different things that we can do i know in our neighborhood we have i think three community gardens and and they're they're tended and people can go pick things up and i know that my family has benefited from from that right saved us some trips to the grocery store because we can pick up like eight cucumbers yeah from the community garden and knowing that that's there 
and being willing to then take it, you know, and, 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 and give and give back to it. Right. Is so vital. Well, and, and I wonder too, there's, and I don't love technology, but, but maybe there, maybe there's access here that wasn't, I think, I think historically the community knew, I think, I think that the, the culture of asking and giving was kind of just, it existed. Like pe- people, people knew that if I had an ask, I could ask, right? Like that we, I, th- I do think we've mm-hmm. lost that. And, and I think one way to get it back would be to, to rebuild that culture. But I do wonder if a way of kind of leveraging, because again, you and I could sit here and agree, Hey, if you need something, ask. And I can, I could say, if I need something, I'm going to ask, we can agree to that. But like, if there was a way right. to do that more publicly, and again, maybe that is the, the neighborhood listserv that now, not only, not only in me asking you for help, do you know that it's okay for you to ask me of help, but if we did that publicly, could that also mm-hmm. let everybody else know, hey, we're in a community that it's okay to ask for help. And so it might be me asking you for the wheelbarrow opens the door for one of our other neighbors to ask another neighbor for something. You know what I mean? And, and I don't know, again, this is not, this is, this is supposed to be me asking you questions. I'm not making statements, but like, I do wonder <laughs> if there's a, if there's an avenue of community and technology where, where because we could make it more public we can we can leverage the ability to spread that that culture of of you know like seth godin says people like us do things like this where you know people like us in our neighborhood in our community we ask for help Mm -hmm. that's totally cool so if you need help just ask um i don't know i i I think um i think that could be kind of cool and and i will say and again back to back to 80 years we went far afield but i'll bring it back the fact that the (laughs) fact that you build an adu for somebody, but either either in somebody else's backyard or or you know on your street, if you're building the ADU for somebody, now I see that the, okay, this is a type of neighborhood where we do share, where we do address challenges and problems head on. We don't we don't mm-hmm. sit there and wish somebody else would do something about that. You know that that's the type of community we live in. I, I think that's incredibly powerful. Um, and, and I do have one, not final, but one question I, I do want to ask before before I, I lose the opportunity is is about. ADUs and costs and, and where you're seeing um, yeah. things in the field, what, what do you see as kind of the breakdown of what, what is, what does all this cost? What, what are the hard costs? What are the soft costs? You mentioned the, the land, you know, the, the effectively marginal zero cost of land because it, it's free, right? It's already in your backyard. You don't have to go out and buy a site for an ADU. Yep. What are some of the costs yep. you're seeing and, and what are kind of, um, how does that break down? Yeah. So, I mean, there's the cost, like if you're going to work with Quorum, you know, there's the cost of our assessing the feasibility of your site. So what's the slope? Where are the trees? You know, like these, you know, do we have room enough to dig a footer? And if we do dig a footer, are we going to harm these different trees in your backyard or what have you? Right. And so there's just this initial work of of feasibility Mm -hmm. and placement and then design that comes with that too. Right. So it's going to be, well, okay, what size structure is going to fit back here? And so that whole process of just feasibility and design is probably going to cost anywhere from, you know, 5,000 to, you know, 10,000, depending on what the needs are of that particular site. Yep. And then beyond that, now you have the construction cost of the materials, the labor, and then, you know, working with a a company, right. That company's profit and overhead because, we still got to survive and keep gotta the lights be a on. Business. Business. Yep. Yeah. And so those are kind of the, the realities. There's this kind of design and development costs and then there's the hard construction costs. And so, you know, you're getting the price of, you know, what are 
60 boards of drywall going to cost and the labor for all the taping and the mudding and what's the insulation going to cost for this square footage and so you have all of these things and so generally for us you know we're we're looking at a price point of you know just to throw a square footage number out i think usually around like 200 to 225 a square foot and usually when you are smaller you're going to have a higher yep. um per square foot price just the nature of it right but you know we don't have these major cost savings aside from just being smaller so you have like less materials and thereby because it's faster you have a little less labor you know so there's going to be some cost savings that we get because of that but it's typically like you know you're, you're building a house right you're yep. building a, a real house and the the savings really are the fact that you're just not paying for land everything else is there and then what we try to do with quorum particularly like you know depending on what the mission is on the back end like are we able to subsidize at all with vendors um or even with the price of the capital right can we find cheaper capital that's not eight percent interest but lower because of the missional aspect of what we're trying to do or are there vendors who are going to be willing to give us a break on costs and get us closer to like you know they're at cost price yeah. You know, and if we can do some things like that, then that can bring the cost down. And then a third thing that we really try to do is in terms of waste, you know, like you're going to buy a roll of, you know, I don't know, you'll buy a roll of something and you'll use a half of that roll for the job and then half is left over. And so how can we then store well all of the all of the waste so that we can reuse and make sure uh, we have as little waste as possible? And so price point ends up ranging from, you know, 80,000 on the low end, the smallest thing that you could build up to really as high as you want. But we try not to build anything over $200,000. That's kind of the price point that we try to stay in. And that, that would be, so that's lower than I anticipated. I was just crunching some numbers um, at 225 a foot. And that's a, that's a range of, of what, what are kind of the, the square footage? What's the small to large range that you're seeing out there? Yeah. So on the small end, we're talking about 190 square feet, right? Um, and that's going to be your highest square foot price. Yeah. You do have some like kind of baseline prices, like, you know, your price to like tie into a sewer under a house is going to be same. the same, whether it's like a 160 square foot house or a 300 square foot house yeah. or a 500 square foot house, right? So you're going to have some of these same prices, but yeah, so we range from uh, that 190 up to 800. So 800 in Durham is your max ADU size. And right. so we have sizes spanning from 190 to the tiniest you can do all the way up to 800. That's perfect. Yeah. And, and then, so the, the feasibility, there's the, but that, that includes, if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, that, that feasibility stage in design includes the cost of designing the structure. And you said you had multiple plans, but, but is that, is that fair? That's in the, the five to 10,000? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's incorporated in that initial cost. And yeah. then cost. And so, so then my price that, that I'm, that I'm paying quorum is between 80 and 200 all in, or is that, 90 and 210. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So again, that's that's lower than expected. And, and back to one thing that I think many people miss $80,000 to $200,000 is well, well, well within the realm of cost or price, however you want it, but either way, both of, of land, like of just sites to build homes, not including the, the, the home piece. Right. And so, Right. That that's right. that to me is is just the power of. I mean, there there I, I would be willing to bet that there are very few sites, you know, built you know parcels for building a home in Durham, and, and I could say more with more confidence in Raleigh that 
you're not finding a site to build a house for less than two hundred thousand dollars. Period. Exactly. It's just it's yeah. it's not yeah. available, and and it's as best I could tell, it's not going to be available for a very long time. And so so right. that to me is just one example of just the, of the power of of ADUs as an avenue to provide homes for people. Um, Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's that's mind blowing. That's that's fantastic. Um, and I, and I love that. Again, I don't need to tell you twice. I love that you're out there doing that work. So, um, <laughs> that was helpful. No, that that absolutely answered my question. So with that, um, I guess kind of second to last question is: Is there anything that you wish we talked about that we didn't get a chance to, or, or anything else on your mind that that you would love to share with the uh, with the audience? <sighs> Truly, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think we actually got a lot more into the kind of emotional spiritual like belonging side of things than i expected um and so uh i really i really don't i i'm I'm just just gratitude man like i'm just i'm grateful for both homeowner partners and tenant partners who make this possible right like you know this isn't possible without all the pieces right and so you know i'm just grateful for people being willing to see something new and i think that what you talked about and i i I don't want to like you know um feed a fed horse but this idea of like, yeah, seeing an ADU in a neighborhood and then people realizing, oh, this is the neighborhood where we do ADUs and where yeah. we share our backyards and where we share our land. I mean, I just, that to me is the most exciting thing. Like 10 years from now, are we looking at just a different cultural fabric because we've, we've pivoted culturally towards sharing and we start asking that question, not just in housing, but in everything, in yeah. food, in healthcare of like, how do we share and we find ways to do it. And so that to me is just, exciting that's awesome I, I will, i'll say this so i believe you said feeding a fed horse is that true is, is that <laughs> a, is that a less violent alternative i won't even say what the alternative statement is but is, is that was that a is, is that a choice is a less <laughs> yes, violent alternative that's the non that's the non-violent of the non-violent version oh man you know? i'm uh, i i it, in a spirit of sharing i'm going to share that away from you. i'm going I'm I'm to borrow that and use that because i can't yes. tell you one of, one of my um most horrifying stories from grad school was we had we had some international students in my class and so trying to explain to somebody whose English is a second language, the alternative of feeding a fed horse, you just get these horrified looks of like, why, like, why, why would somebody say such a thing? Why would you do such a thing? Um, and, there, and, and the more you think about it, again, once you notice that, there are so many expressions yeah. in the English language that would just be horrifying if, if you took them at face value. And again, we won't, we won't yep. go down that path, but I'm, I'm feeding a fed horse is much better than the alternative yes. and I'm going to take it. Yes. So with that, thank you. No, um, it, and, 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 and I just want to say, I did please. not make that up. I do not, I can't give credits to where it came from, but I do know that I heard it somewhere and I was like, that's great. Yeah. And I now want to remove as much violence as I can from my language. Right. But how do you do it? Um, how do you do it? Feeding a exactly. fed horse is the start. So, okay, good. Hopefully That's we can get some started. more converts on the show. Um, with that, if, if somebody is a, a, a partner, a potential partner interested in the work that you're doing, um, how can they find out more? Yeah. Um, quorumhouses.org, C-O-R-A-M, houses.org is our website. That's a great place to start. Also, if you look up quorumhouses, um, it should bring you to you know our Instagram page, Facebook website, all these different things, blogs, news articles where we've been written about. So I would just say a quick Google search of Quorum Houses will get you in contact with us. And, and I'll I'll share that link in the show notes absolutely. And then is uh, is there that anything is. else that you would like the audience to do, see, read, um, any call to action for our audience? 
Absolutely. Just be, and I feel like this, this audience is probably already going to be geared in this direction, but yeah, be involved, be involved in what's happening in your neighborhood and in your community. Take the time to ask those good questions. And then, yeah, there are some books on the built environment. I can send you a list, but you know, one I think of is called Brave New Home that just like truly opened up my view of kind of my imagination of what's possible. There's a great book called Race for Profit um, about uh, HUD in the 70s. And I, I mean, it's really fascinating. Another great book called Color of Law that diagnoses and, and tells the history of uh, racial segregation in housing and, and how it was, you know, made legal. So those are just a great a few starting points in terms of this kind of intersection between injustice and housing and property. So, yeah. Awesome. Those are some things. And, Read and, books, be involved yeah. in your community. Well, and, and and you mentioned um, Poverty by America by Matthew Desmond, Evicted. I would also put on that list. Yes. It was a complete yes. opener, punch in the gut. Oh, my goodness. Um, but it's uh, – absolutely yeah so we'll, we'll put all the links in there with that Topher, man i appreciate yeah. your time this was fantastic i learned a lot and uh just enjoyed catching up with you so thank you very much for your time thank you jed i appreciate it man enjoy peace peace